Holy, holy, holy. Uh, the word in the Old Testament Hebrew is kadosh. Kadosh. In the New Testament Greek, it's hagios. And uh, I remember the first big Hebrew word study we did at Dallas Seminary in uh, the Hebrew Old Testament was on the the word holy. Kadosh means completely distinct. And it typically is used most of the time to refer to God's separateness or distinctness from any moral impurity. But when you actually look at the way it's used throughout the Old Testament, it's bigger than just that. It means God is totally different and distinct from everything else. And theologians usually uh, use a term like uh, transcendence to mean that God is totally different than his creation. He's outside of time and space. And if you'll notice in that list of attributes, we, we use the two juniors live acronym to remember major attributes of God. I don't even list holy as one of the attributes of God because it's really a composite of his righteousness and justice as far as his distinctness from any moral impurity. And his transcendence means he's distinct from all of creation. He doesn't need us. He wants us. Um, I remember hearing sermons where, you know, if you don't witness to your neighbor and they get in a car right and go to hell, it's your fault. And, you know, it's just, it's more complicated than that. I mean, God is not limited to get the message out based on my, me having a, a head cold or something and not being able to go to the hospital that day to talk to somebody in ICU. It's not, people's salvation is not dependent on, uh, the servants God, God uses to spread the gospel. Um, now Murray, it's a, it's a thrill to have a VIP back, uh, on his home base here. Murray is a happy, Reasonably happy OSU uh, pre-engineering engineering student, taking a lot of math classes and a chemistry class and this and that. So um, all your successes, I'm going to take a certain amount of credit for because I trained you at CU Duncan how to think, how to study, how to work. And uh, if you don't do as well as you want to in the chemistry class, I got nothing to do with that. I know nothing about chemistry, so it's not my fault. I do notice that you're looking more and more like Charles, Charles Haddon Spurgeon all the time, the famous golden-throated British preacher of a hundred plus years ago who spoke so wisely and well at Westminster Chapel for many years. Um, now, when Trey and Julie walked in, I said, boy, you guys have a road game today because they have like an hour and a half drive from Mustang. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm glad that uh, you know Scott and Nancy were able to see it is doable because when they move... They're moving to Mustang uh, for obvious reasons. There's a magnet there that attracts them. It's not necessarily Julie or Trey. It's the three grandkids, you know. But I know how that feels, and I know you get lobbied to do that. Uh, when they told me last week they were going to do that, pretty quickly, too. Um, I said, I, I knew you were going to go sooner or later, but I thought it would be a year or two. So... Uh, you know, I always say, and usually at the, the, at the at the outdoor service, I tend to kind of just reflect on some of some of my memories of the church and some of the things I've learned. I think, but you know, the TBF, like all churches, you know, is like a river. You never, I think Aristotle said or Plato said, you never enter the same river twice because it's different molecules. You know, we have people uh, move out of town for work. We have people move out of town to be with their grandkids. We have people come in, come out. Uh, we don't have a formal membership here. We have a functional membership. You're as much of a member as you want to be. I think that's pretty much the way the apostles did it. But uh, there's different ways to do it. We don't pass an offering plate. We don't have a 30-year-old guy with his shirt untucked telling you three ways you can feel better about yourself every week. So, you know, churches can't function unless you do it that way, right? So I always felt like you've got to kind of be tough to live in Oklahoma uh, because of our weather changes, and you've got to be kind of a special breed of cat uh, to appreciate TBF. Uh, but uh, uh, Scott and Nancy, who uh, I don't, they didn't remember me as much as I remembered them, but I mean, uh, their their son Scott was on a a coach pitch um, baseball team that I I coached, and I was always a pitcher in baseball and softball, and. That's the most pressure I've ever experienced in sports is standing on that little, little little pitching pad and you've got like a five-year-old kid. You say, okay, Jimmy, take a couple swings. So you're trying to think, how can I hit that kid's bat? They're not, they're not hitting the ball. You're trying to hit their bat. But the ball they give you is softer than a marshmallow. It wouldn't hurt a flea. 
and it's about one ounce, you know. And it's impossible to throw that thing accurately when the wind's whipping like it usually does in the spring at 20 miles an hour, you know, in your face or something. It goes over their head. And the way we did it back then was, if the kid swings and misses three times, he's, he's out. But they all get a maximum of seven pitches. And most of them just watch the pitch go by and don't even swing at it, you know. And uh, I had moms... I mean, even at the softball field, we'd occasionally get rabid fans get mad at us if we beat the Knights of Columbus or something. But I had, I hated being the pitcher because you try to throw that dart in there and if they swing and miss it, it's my fault. If they hit it, it's because their kids, the new incarnation of Babe Ruth. I get no credit whatsoever. And I hit the kid's bat. He just held it after I hit it, you know. Uh, but some of these mothers, if you strike at their kid, I mean, you could throw seven right in a row, right down the middle. They don't even swing. And the umpire says, sorry, Jimmy, you got to go sit down. And the mother goes, you stupid pitcher, what kind of an idiot are you? I mean, it was horrible. So I met you under those circumstances. They were never the problem parents, by the way. But I've known them a long time, and it was such a, a thrill for them to uh, kind of discover TBF and really love it and really, you know, just embrace it. And so... We will miss you, but uh, you're always, all of you are always alumni, you know. Having no formal membership means you never get to quit, you know what I mean? You're, we know where you live. We can find you if we need you, and we'll let you know. Okay, now that I've waxed eloquent on that, let's start. Uh, Mark 3.22, we are on a helicopter ride looking at the life of Christ. We're looking at the 26 major events in the life of Christ as recorded in the canonical Gospels using the life of Christ A through Z system, and guess what? We are in letter O today. So if somebody, you know, if Danny asks you when you get home, what did you learn today? What did you study today? Uh, or you can say, oh, like you're wondering what you learned. Well, you learned about O, right? Yeah, uh, Oklahoma, right? Uh, but we're going to call this opposition offered, and it's the Pike's Peak of the life of Christ, Dustin, because everything changes after this. This isn't just a random person saying an insulting thing to Jesus. This is the official position of the religious leaders of institutional Judaism. I am not an anti-Semite. I'm far from that. I'm very pro-Israel. I've got Jewish friends, Palestinian friends, Muslim friends, literally, that email me from time to time. But um, it wasn't the Jews that crucified Jesus. It was the Romans. He was there because of all of us, ultimately, spiritually, theologically. But the institutional system of Judaism in Jesus' day could not have him, did not want him, would not accept him. And they literally demonize him because they say, not only are you not the Messiah, you're not son of God, you are a demon satanically possessed false prophet. That's their considered opinion. That explains all the data because he is doing miracles. And they said that full consent of the will after considering all the implications because they refused to respond to the seeking grace of God. And that's called the unpardonable sin. So we're going to talk about the unpardonable sin today. And I don't want to make light of that because I have talked to people who are convinced they committed the unpardonable sin and it's a bad place to be. And each time they have done something uniquely terrible but uh, it's not what most people think it is. So we're going to talk about what it is, what it isn't, and how not to do it. Because I grew up, first time as a little kid in the Baptist church, when I heard about the unpardonable sin, that there was such a thing in the Bible. I'm not sure they explained it to us, but it got mentioned somewhere. I thought, I'm the kind of person who thinks, if there's any way to mess something up, I'll probably do it, right? So I'm thinking, I want to find out what that unpardonable sin is and not do it. So we'll tell you what it is, what it isn't, how not to do it today. Uh, so, Lord willing, as the Spirit illumines, uh, we can, as we soften up our own hearts to be eagerly teachable to the Word of God, we can learn some things that can be transforming truth for us. And uh, as we go to prayer for teachability, let me remind you, and I'm getting uh, data even as we speak, um, the TBF track team, this is the original TBF track team, okay? This was like... Ten years ago, when several of us ran in a 5K at Simmons Center together, um, noticed the person with the one on his... You know, that didn't mean I won. That means I was the first guy to sign up. That's how eager I was to sign up back then, to get a free T-shirt. You know? That's the only reason I got one. But this year, we've got uh, Michael and Anthony, uh, Michael Birch and Anthony uh, Foreman, who are running a half marathon. It's a, a marathon is 26 miles and a little bit. 
So they ran a little over 13 miles. Uh, Ken and Carol ran the quarter marathon, which sounds a lot more impressive than a 10K, but it's basically the same thing. It's a little over six miles. And then Amanda Birch, who's running for two, <laughs> she ran a 5K, which is 3.1 miles. So they're the current uh, team, uh, but they don't look as good as the original team. You know, no way. But as is our custom, and we're happy to do it, let's pray that we'll be teachable to God's word, and also let's pray for those who protect and defend, including our active military and peace officers and firefighters. So, Murray, if you would uh, pray for us in that direction, okay? Thanks, Murray. It's good to see you, buddy. I, I think about you a lot, and I pray for you. I, want, I don't pray for you every day, but I pray for you regularly. And so uh, I'm proud of you, man. Um, let's warm up our capacity for abstract thought real quickly. See if you th- see a theme in these. Here's a guy sitting in a doctor's uh, examination room, and, he, and, and the patient says, I already diagnosed myself on the Internet. I'm only here for a second opinion. So hopefully he didn't get charged as much, right? Um, these are two doctors talking, or maybe a doctor talking to the administrator of the hospital or something. More and more patients, the doctor says, are going to the Internet for medical advice. To keep my practice going, I changed my name to, watch this, James, Dr. Google. That would work, because Google's where you go to get the information, right? And then finally, uh, here's a, a lady with her young son and the uh, the family practice doctor. Uh, looks like Mexican jumping beans coming out of that prescription bottle. But he says, take a few capsules each morning before you weigh yourself. They're filled with helium. So, you know, lighten you up a little bit. Uh, one key statement. Carson, this is really important. The first couple of verses in John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, okay, kind of sum up the essence of what these 26 major events are all about. In the beginning was the Word. Now, the, the title of the Word, Halagos, there is a title for Jesus, as the context makes clear. There's no doubt about that. In the beginning, Jesus already was. He's before the beginning. He's Kadosh. He's Hagias. He's totally distinct from creation. He's transcendent and certainly apart from any moral corruption. In the beginning, the Word, Jesus already was, and the Word was with God the Father and the Spirit. They're different persons. They don't need to create to love. They've got a perfect loving relationship. They don't need us. They want us. And the Word was God. He wasn't God the Father. He's deity. He's fully God in his essence, in his character. And that's the member of the Holy Trinity. No man has seen God the Father at any time. The begotten Son is the one who visibly manifests the Godhead, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the word Jesus, the one before the beginning, who's himself God, full deity, took on flesh. One person, two natures, the unique person of the universe. Nobody else is like this. Muhammad's not like this. Buddha doesn't claim to be like this. Nobody could be this. He's the mediator between God and man because he's the God-man. The Word became flesh, took on humanity without ceasing to be deity, and he dwelt among us. He lived among us. Hey, Carson, Jesus created the universe, and he walked around in the on planet Earth, on that little dust speck in the far side of the universe, that in this vast universe, it's just a little bitty thing, and we think we're the center of the universe, and we're not. He is. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. So when you look, think about the life of Christ, A through Z, Trey, we're talking really uh, from the virgin conception through the ascension. So we're talking about all this stuff. The Word became flesh. He looks like that schematically. Now, last week we looked at the Lord and the leper. Remember, in, in, uh, that was letter N, nature neutralized. Jesus doing big miracles to validate his claims to be God in human form. And we learned about the dynamics of saving faith. It's active receptive trust. It's not just mental assent. It full consent of the will. And we learn that no one is so bad they can't be saved by grace through faith. It's interesting. Last week we found out and emphasized no one is so bad they can't be saved through faith. Uh, today we're going to talk about the unpardonable sin. You can get so hardened in your total reject and rejection of Jesus Christ, you're beyond the point of spiritual no return. That's not a good place to be. But if you're afraid that's where you are, you ain't there by definition. Uh, the people who get there self-righteously are there, and they could care less. But we're going to, just ironic, we looked at the Lord and the leper last week. We saw that 
Uh, salvation is available even to lepers today. It's even to child molesters, even to bank robbers and serial killers. Uh, sometimes that does do, that does happen, you know. If you look especially at the Old Testament, you realize God has used all kinds of kind of slimy human raw material to accomplish his purposes. Have you read about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? How about Judah? Nobody talks about Genesis 38. We talk about Joseph, 37 through 50. You got that little parenthesis in 38. What did Lot do with his daughters for crying out loud? And yet Jude calls him righteous Lot because he had a righteous standing. So it's very important to realize that we're saved by grace, God's grace, unmerited favor, his initiation through faith, active, receptive trust in Christ. And while good works are the intended fruit of that, they're not the root or the cause of that. So we saw the Lord and the leper last week. Today in Mark, we're going to see the leaders and the Lord. And I put the leaders first because their charge in verse 22 gets the whole thing going. Uh, let's read this passage. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. The scribes, they weren't just guys that copied the text for rich people. These guys copied the text, memorized the text, were the authoritative teachers of the text for institutional Judaism. The scribes, the guys who really claimed to really know and understand and to live out the Old Testament scripture, who came down from Jerusalem or in the Galilean area where Jesus is doing his Galilean ministry. These guys come from the home office of institutional Judaism with the party line. And they're saying, pay no attention to the fact he can do all these miracles. He uh, is possessed by Beelzebub, a title for Satan. So sure, he can do miracles, but they're all satanic works designed to deceive you. He's not the Messiah. He's a satanically possessed false prophet. He casts out demons, but just based on the authority of the ruler of the demons, Lucifer, Satan. Um, That's the charge. Here comes the challenge. That cannot go unchallenged. And Jesus called them to himself, began speaking in figures of speech. He said, that's absurd. How can Satan cast out Satan? Satan's not going to shoot himself in the head to win the cosmic battle, is he? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Abraham Lincoln famously cited that in the Gettysburg Address. It needs to be cited again. We used to have a loyal opposition, which meant not that we loyally opposed each other, but we were loyal to certain key overriding concepts as Americans, rather regardless of your race, color, creed, or political affirmation, and that appears to be far gone. Um, uh, it can come back, but it is scary. And I, I quite often think about the Lord saying that and then Abraham Lincoln saying that at the Gettysburg Address. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Uh, if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. He's emphasizing that. Satan is not working against himself here. I'm working against Satan. I'm working against Satan, and you're claiming I'm working for Satan. And that's just crazy, because Satan wouldn't shoot himself in the head to, quote-unquote, make points in the cosmic battle. If Satan's risen, and it's actually good news. If I'm working for Satan, he's I'm destroying his ministry, so he's going to lose that much quicker. If Satan then has risen against himself, is divided, he cannot stand, he's finished. He's done. You know, that's good news. Uh, but no one can enter the strong man's house. Here the strong man is Satan, and this is Jesus using a vigorous speech that he's the one who can bind the power of Satan and then do whatever you want to to his house. Jesus is undermining the whole program of Satan. Satan knows that. These, these guys don't, and they just turn it around. So he's saying this is absurd. Now verse 28, he's saying uh, whatever he's saying there. We've got a point there. Wish I could remember. I'll tell you later. Uh, he's talking about the seriousness of the charge. It's absurd, and this is very serious. The fact that you would dare say I'm satanically possessed means you are so far gone, you're beyond the point of spiritual no return. You're not just thinking about it. Most people don't respond to the gospel blast the first time they hear it. They may have to hear it many, many times. Uh, Bob Shallot thought about it for a long time. He wasn't committing unpardonable sin. He was just thinking through it, right? These people have had mucho light. They've had more than enough exposure. I mean, try these people have seen Jesus. They, this wasn't the first time they saw him. They've been sending people to monitor this activity since the day of John the Baptist. When you see scribes from Jerusalem or Pharisees from Jerusalem, it means they're going out of their air condition. They didn't have air conditioning back then, but they'd have a slave that's fanning them, you know, or servant. 
These guys had been watching John the Baptist and Jesus, uh, not so that they might, in theory, to evaluate what they're saying, so they can make a report, see if they can work with him, but they pretty quickly decide we can't work with these guys. Uh, we we reject him. Can you imagine seeing Jesus daily doing his ministry and saying, this guy isn't the Messiah who he claims to be. He's a satanically possessed false prophet. I mean, what kind of bizarro thing? Uh, we live in a culture that seems to call evil good and good evil, and that's the ultimate example of that. That shows you just how depraved people can be. But it's, you know, it's his fault, right? It's not their fault. It's never... The uh, perpetrator's fault. It's always somebody. It's Jesus' fault. He shouldn't be doing these miracles because they're satanically possessed, right? Truly, I say to you that all sins will be forgiven the sons of men. Whatever blasphemies they they utter, but whoever blasphemes in this way, who dares to say the Spirit of God that's directing the person of Jesus in his ministry, in fact, is Satan, because they're so far deep in their rejection, they'll never come back, and they do not want him and will not have him. Whoever does that is, in effect, guilty of an eternal sin. Now, what does he mean by that? Because they, these scribe, authoritative teachers from Jerusalem, from the temple precinct, were saying that Jesus, the Messiah, was indwelt by the ultimate evil spirit, Satan himself. That's the extent of their rejection. Okay, that's the point. A couple practical principles come out to me. Number one, notice I say that uh, respected leaders, both religious, political uh, academic and even in mass media, respected leaders can be radically wrong. The people making this charge are the respected leaders of institutional Judaism. These guys know the scriptures. They've memorized the whole Tanakh, the whole Old Testament in the original Hebrew. That's impressive. Um, and that's one reason why you do not want one person, except for Jesus himself, to be the leader of anything, including a local church, a denomination, a parachurch, a Bible college, a seminary, or anything else that's quote-unquote Christian. And you never want to give any one person absolute veto power over a local church, denomination, parachurch, mini, ministry, seminary, or Bible college. You'll notice in the book of Acts, you always have elders in every church. Elders, plural. You don't have one guy. You've got a multiple group of guys. You've got multiple leadership. You don't want any one person to be Jesus for you. There's one Jesus. We, I'm not making disciples of Brad McCoy. I'm trying to m- contribute to you becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. People who want to make you their disciples scares me. Not biblical. Shouldn't happen. But some people think it's a cool deal. Uh, TBF has five elders. How are we going to figure out who those are? They're, they're secretly listed on the back of the bulletin every week. So you won't know who they are. Uh, and that would be uh, Dale. Homer, me, Ron, and Mike. And so we, we, you know, um, none of us, we kind of spread the power around, and we should. We have the right and the duty of overseeing the function of the church, and we try to do that best we can. Um, and I've, you know, I've, I've stressed this a lot, and I think I, you guys know this, but Betty, uh, it sounds so, so spiritual to say, well, our elder board or our congregation, however you organize it, only make decisions if we have unanimous votes. That really sounds spiritual. I mean, the Holy Spirit must be working if all these people can agree. You know, that sounds like a recipe for disaster to me. Because if you do that with a congregation or even a board of elders, um, you're giving every single individual member absolute veto power over everything, and that violates the whole principle of multiple leadership, right? So, um, you know, it's... It's been a while since I haven't gotten my way with the elder group, but uh, there have been times I've gotten, had bright ideas, and I was the only one who thought it was a bright idea, and I didn't get mad, I didn't quit, I, I didn't get in the pulpit and say, I want to do X, but these dum-dums want to do Y. My job is to make Y work at that point. Now, if they'd said, well, that deity of Christ thing, we don't believe that anymore, then I'm going to respectfully recognize their authority as human majority and say, it's been nice being working with you. But um, I'm going to very nice, nice, nicely, I'll give you two weeks, and I'm out of here because I'm not going to get up in the pulpit and say, I don't believe the deity of Christ, or something like that. We're not talking about moral or doctrinal essentials. But I think that's very, very important that we don't, even in our minds, we don't give Pastor Brad, well, Pastor Brad believes this, so it's got to be true. That's not a good enough reason. If the text doesn't teach it, and I'm I, I'm very capable of making mistakes, and I have, Um 
my uh, view of Genesis 1. I must have been wrong at least. I've had three different views during my uh, Christian life, so I must have been wrong at least twice <laughs> uh, on exactly the timing of all that kind of stuff. But uh, I think the, uh, and you might say, why is he going into this? He's getting off track again. Number one, I just read an article that said Dallas Seminary people never apply anything practically, which I don't think that's true, but I'm trying to be practical. Number two, contrast the leaders of institutional Judaism with, say, the leaders of Tanguid Bible Fellowship. None of us have veto power. None of us get our way on everything just because it's us. Um, even though you know, it's, it's not our authority is not based on our person, our character, our knowledge, or our experience. Although those are important for leaders, it's based on you know the derived authority of Scripture. That's what we, where we get ours. In contrast, in Mark three here, the religious leaders of Jesus' day com- committing the unpardonable sin were considered above criticism because these guys were the authoritative teachers of the Old Testament law to that generation. And after thousands of years of prophecy, when they, that they'd memorized, they knew Micah 5 2 said he'd be born in Bethlehem. They know Isaiah 53 says he's going to die for the sins and rise again. They know all that stuff. Uh, when these guys said Jesus, as a satanically possessed false prophet, Peg, I'm convinced the average person said, well, he can't be that bad, but he cannot be the Messiah or our guys would miss it that badly. They're basically assuming they can't really be very wrong. Um, and, and yet, you know, what's the reason? There, there were, hey, Lendl, they're, they're rejecting Jesus after looking at him and watching his ministry for months and months and months and months, and then they reject him. And you know who's at fault here in their mind? You know why they're rejecting Jesus? It's his fault, because he's possessed by Satan. I mean, they very self-righteously, smugly, happily, literally demonize Jesus Christ. And you can't even think in those categories unless you're so far gone spiritually, you're beyond the point of no return. But... You know, another one of my practical principles I hope you remember is the reason sometimes I give myself for some of my laziness, selfishness, or sinfulness, the reason you give yourself, but quite often the reason people give other Christians when they do something embarrassing, stupid, sinful, and lazy, the reason they give often isn't the real reason. It's it's other reasons, you know. It's just the least embarrassing excuse. So these guys have a great reason for rejecting, Je- rejecting Jesus. You know why they're rejecting? These are the, the authoritative teachers of the Old Testament. They're rejecting Jesus, fellas. You know why? It's not because they're unwilling to recognize who he is and joyfully bow down at his feet. It's because he's satanically possessed. That's why they're rejecting him. See? They got a good reason, but it's not the real reason. They're very self-interested, self-righteous, and make a lot of money from the status quo. Now look at the charge here. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying... He's possessed by Beelzebub, which originally was a title for a Canaanite god, but it became a title for G- for Satan. And you can tell that by the context. In other words, he's casting out demons. Yeah, he does supernatural things like that, but only because Lucifer controls him and, and they, he does it in that kind of power. Now, we're talking about Trey, uh, the great Galilean ministry of Jesus, which was based in the northern part of Israel, but we're told specifically we got the eggheads from Jerusalem who are coming. Beware of people with PhDs. They can be dangerous. Uh, not all of us, but some of us are. So basically, that's the region of Galilee. That's where Jesus is, somewhere in that region, except for three or four times a year when he goes to Jerusalem for specific religious holidays. They're from Jerusalem, right? That's where they are. Uh, and they've come after uh, considered thinking and strategy sessions with their political operative, what are we going to do with this guy? If we accept him, we've got to repudiate everything we're doing and the way we're doing it. Uh, we're making a lot of money from the status quo. Plus, they really probably think they're right. They're so much smarter than the average people. It's okay for us to kind of do the right things the wrong way. That's okay. So always the way the, the, the eggheads think. Um, but these are not just copyists. They're experts in the law. They were considered to be above reproach, and they're coming from the home office in Jerusalem to give the party line and to explain away for the average person the miracles that prove who Jesus really is. I call this the Pike's Peak of the Ministry of Christ because, uh, and we'll look at P next week, where Jesus starts teaching in parables so that only the people who really want it can even hope to understand it. So he can't, he's not going to give more information they're going to use against him to the average religious leader there who's already rejected him. 
But, you know, we're, everything goes up from the beginning of the mystery after the, uh, uh, initiation of the baptism. That's D, Dove descends at the Duncan and interacting with Satan himself and then beginning the ministry and doing miracles. The crowds are gathering. They're trying to consider who he is. They're thinking the national leaders need to tell us what they think about him. And now they do. And what do they say, Steve? Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Of course he does miracles. Big deal. They're all satanically empowered. So, boom, which tells you another lesson, Dustin, not everything supernatural is from God, right? They were right about that. Now, watch this. Richard Dawkins, the guy who wrote The God Delusion, Sam Harris, the psychiatrist who's probably the leader of the new atheist, they're not saying anything new except they're vilifying Christians, like we're the source of all evil. That's that's kind of new. But just their arguments are the same thing that, uh, you know, um, Bertrand Russell used um, in the 20th century. They don't have new arguments. But, uh, yeah, uh, today, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and those people, th- what do they say about the miracles of Jesus? They believe that Jesus did miracles? Sam Harris doesn't believe. He's a materialist. He didn't believe Jesus. He didn't believe in miracles, right? And he's just saying the disciples made it up, or they were so stupid they thought he did miracles. You notice, the religious leaders don't do that. I mean, if he was faking it, that's what they would say, right? If he wasn't really healing lepers... They just say, well, that guy was an actor. He just pretended he just had makeup on. He wasn't really healed. He lives down the street. We've got corroborating evidence on that kind of thing. There's no corrobor- They know he's doing miracles. So what do they got to do? They can't deny the miracles. They got to deny the source or uh, demonize the source. See, they don't have the option that Richard Dawkins has. He just says the disciples made it up or they're so stupid they thought he was doing miracles. They all had a group hallucination, which is impossible, by the way. But yeah, so that's very important. This is backhanded confirmation of Jesus' miraculous power because their enemies, his enemies can't deny it, right? But yeah, these guys knew the Old Testament like the back of their hand, which is a, the older I get, the more I hate that analogy myself because I look at it. Man. Uh, now we look at our Bible as Old Testament, New Testament. They've got the Old Testament, which is emphasizing all human beings sin and die, but God's going to send a savior. And they know he's claiming to be the Savior based on Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Micah 5, 2, etc. All these statements. You look at the Old Testament. Lori, I mean, it talks about who he's going to be, where he's going to be born, the basic time frame which he'll be here, and why, and what he's going to do on the cross. They don't know all those, they know all those verses. They don't deny the verses. They just say he can't fit because he's not the Messiah. He's a satanically possessed false prophet. Now, they weren't real clear on the fact, and as First Peter 1 says, it was hard to figure out uh, the truth that the Old Testament's description of the Messiah is talking about one person who's going to have two separate comings or advents. The first time Jesus came, why? As the, as the Lamb of God. Second time he's going to come as the Lion. Is Which one is he? Is, is he the Lamb or the Lion? He's both. Is he the Son of God or the Son of Man? That's called the... Uh, Fallacy of the excluded middle, uh, where you act like you've got to choose one or two options. Is he the son of God or the son of man? Which one is he? He's both. You know, there's the truth in the middle, almost always, right? So they're aware of all this stuff. The one thing they won't believe is who he really is, and they rejected it. They don't want it. They repudiate it consciously, deliberately, in a hardened state. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the God-man Savior. Okay, So that's the charge. And that is the ultimate blasphemy. And you gotta be so messed up to literally believe that, and that's where they are. Um, and that's a bomb, because that is not just one guy who wandered up there and charged that who's not rational. This is the official position of institutional Judaism formulated in Jerusalem. They've come up there to kind of take the air out of the balloon of Jesus. And in some ways they do, because the crowds run start drifting away slowly, not immediately. The emphasis on big miracles changes because if the charge is he's doing miracles by satanic power, the more miracles he does, if you buy the premise, the more satanic works he's doing, right? If he'd done 50 miracles up to this point and he does another 20 big ones, that's 20 more acts. And by the way, that is a capital crime under the Old Testament law. To be a false prophet, much less a satanically possessed false prophet. So Jesus does not explicitly talk about the cross until after this. And almost immediately he gets very specific with the guys. They don't want to hear it. He says it multiple times. It doesn't really stick, but he gets explicit after that point. Okay. 
So, well, I thought Jesus said we're not supposed to respond to charges. If somebody accused me of stealing money from the from the box or any kind of sexual impropriety or something like that, I would defend myself. Uh, I was going to say dynamically, but I'm not that dynamic. I've been told. Um, I would maybe boringly. I'd defend myself boringly. Yeah, that's what I do, right? It's, I can work so hard to be boring on Sunday mornings. It's just a lot of time, you know. But um, yeah, he's going to uh, respond to the uh, the critics by just rejecting the charges, absurd, and explaining. And I think I think he's sad. I don't think he's smiling when he says, "You guys have committed unpardonable sin." Ha ha ha! You're going to get what you deserve. I think he very sadly, reluctantly says, "Do you realize how messed up you are? I mean, this is horrible. It's unbelievable that you guys who know the scriptures so well could." Miss it so dynamically. I'll use that word. That's my word today, right? Uh, let's look and see what it says. Here's the uh, rejection of the charge. And we kind of, we talked about it, but we can repeat it. Uh, called him to himself. He's not saying, well, you hurt my feelings. I'm out of here. I'm going to quit preaching, you know? No, we're going to change the emphasis from getting the word out as widely as possible, big miracles, to pre- pre- preparing the disciples to carry on after the crucifixion. Because humanly speaking, it's a done deal, Kylie. Because if they're going to emphasize that's who he is, they they got to have him killed. Now, they don't have the power of capital punishment because the Roman army for the last hundred years has occupied Israel. they got to get the Romans to check off on it. And it was the Romans who crucified Christ. Um, the Jews didn't crucify anybody. They stoned people to death. Uh, the Romans invented crucifixion for one special kind of crime, um, rebellion against Rome. It, murderers were not crucified. Unless you were killing Roman soldiers or tax collectors who collected the money. You had to be guilty of insurrection against Rome. And they'd publicly humiliate and torture these people. And and what what, what would that say to Publius who's thinking, maybe I won't pay my taxes this year. Maybe I'll, you know, kind of subtly rebel against Rome. They're saying, if you do that, we will find you and we will crucify you. So I've really kind of minimized the motivation to want to kind of uh, rebel against Rome, if you understand so he said, how can Satan cast out Satan? I'm repudiating, I'm destroying his whole program here. If a kingdom is divided against itself, it won't stand. If a house is divided against itself, it will not stand. Um, and again, go back to the Gettysburg Address. Uh, Lincoln, about eight months after 50,000 people were killed over the two-day battle of Gettysburg on both sides. And it's interesting, within two weeks in 1863, you've got the Battle of Gettysburg and the Battle of Vicksburg, which made it pretty obvious the people against slavery were going to win. The good guys were going to win, okay? They weren't sure. I mean, before Gettysburg, you've got the Confederate Army in Pennsylvania, north of Washington, D.C. If they win, what's going to happen? So anyway, after those two battles providentially take place within two weeks of each other, about eight months after that, Lincoln goes to the site of where 50,000 people were killed in two days on both sides. It's a horrific kind of a thing, and yet you, you've got to have a statement about that. Like we have the statement about the OKC bombing. If you haven't been there, I hope you can go to the memorial. It's very touching. It's very humbling, and it causes you to reflect on some things, you know. But anyway, yeah, and, and Lincoln is on a train, and he writes the final draft out on the back of an envelope. Now, quite often on Sunday mornings, uh, before I leave church, I write out my to-do list on the back of an envelope, and by Sunday afternoon, I can't find the envelope. But fortunately, Lincoln didn't lose the envelope, but uh, he wasn't the only speaker. <laughs> you know, Gettysburg Address lasted like, what, eight and a half minutes or something? It was crazy, very short. Uh, say, Brad, take note. Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, next question. Uh, yeah, he writes it out. He delivers it. And, you know, he had a squeaky voice and he didn't have good speech delivery. I'd have to give him a C- on his delivery, you know, if I had to be honest with him. I only give myself a C+. I'm not that impressed by myself either, but, uh, actually. But, uh, in the aftermath, and much, much of the media in the North weren't crazy about Lincoln at the time. It's hard to believe, but they didn't like Abraham Lincoln. You know, now we kind of, We've got him on Mount Rushmore. What, by the way, was that wind, rain, and erosion for millions of years that put those faces on there? I don't think so. That looks like intelligent design to me. But um, 
Yeah, the, the editorials said, well, everybody else was speaking for 40 minutes, and he only spoke for eight minutes. He doesn't care about our war dead and all this stuff, you know. When people uh, question your spirituality and your salvation because of uh, things like that, it just is it's un- unfortunate. So I'm sure Lincoln probably didn't like that. But he's just saying, hey, look, and I just it's so powerful as we look at modern America. I don't care if you're conservative or liberal, Democrat or Republican, this is not a good place for us to be hating each other because of politi- political positions. You know, it's just ridiculous. Um, ISIS is a problem. I don't care how nice you are to them. They're not going to get any madder. We, we cannot make them mad by having good prevention and eradication rather than kind of a, a containment policy. Once we got Mad Dog Madison there, it was an elimination policy and, um, it's, you know, it worked pretty well. And it's unfortunate. But justice isn't pretty, but it should be preceded by grace and prosecuted in a righteous fashion. And, and when you got a mad dog trying to kill you and your children, you got to take out the mad dog. Uh, this is just absurd. If Satan has risen up against himself, you ought to be celebrating because he's done. He's not going to be operationally effective anymore if he's sending me to work on his side because everything I'm doing is opposed to what he's wanting to have. Uh, I've got to be stronger than him to be able to do this, by the way, so I don't have his power. I've got the power of the Spirit of God that's directing me, and I'm the second person of the Trinity in human form. That's basically what he's saying, and it's a brilliant thing. 28, 29, 30 is the seriousness of this charge. You guys have said a mouthful. That's, that's an old saying we used to say. When you say something profound, boy, you said a mouthful. Remember that? But it's kind of a disgusting figure of speech that nobody uses it anymore, which is a good thing. Truly I say to you, that's the first time in, in Mark where he cited this saying, verily, verily, kind of thing that King James says, but he's re- that's when he's really saying something important, and everything he says is important. Truly I say to you, and that's all y'all, the guys from Jerusalem, all kinds of sins will be forgiven, the sons of men. That means Nancy as much as Scott. It's the sons of men refers to generically human beings. Even blasphemy against God. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit in this sense... Not saying the Holy Spirit. I don't like the Holy Spirit. Down with the Holy Spirit. Is that blasphemy? I guess, yeah. Holy Spirit isn't really God. Um, that's blasphemy. Yeah, it doesn't mean that. Blasphemy in this sense, where the Spirit of God who's indwelling the person, the humanity of Jesus, is being said to be not the Holy Spirit of God, but Satan himself. That's what they're saying. They're rejecting Jesus to that fullest, hardened extent. Uh, you got to... Understand this unpardonable sin in that context. I say to you, all kinds of sins, every kind of sin can be forgiven. I mean, child abuse, uh, torture of children, uh, 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 violently assaulting your spouse. You talk about uh, domestic abuse, uh, which I don't like that. You know, um, according to FBI stats, one in three women will be. Uh, in, impacted be, um, in their lifetime with some kind of physical abuse or some kind of sexual harassment kind of thing up to uh, serious uh, sex crimes. One out of three, you know, that breaks my heart. That's a stat we cite in the communication class most semesters. And I, it, it, it's hard for me to say that. I got three sisters, um, and uh, just to think that is horrible. But even those kind of crimes can be forgiven. But to categorically, deliberately, to his face, saying, I don't believe you're the Messiah, I will not have you as my Savior, I don't want you, I don't need you, and in fact, I'm convinced, and I'm going to try to convince them that the power you've got is satanic. That's where they are spiritually. They've crossed like the point of no return. I think you can get so hardened that God's not going to draw you anymore in any circumstance. You're, you're done. You're toast. You're human toast. And he's basically saying, you guys are human toast. But whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit in the sense that you're looking at the Messiah in the face and saying the power the Spirit of God within me is in fact satanic, uh, that's never going to be forgiven. You're, you're done. You're human toast. And then Mark, to make sure you know what he means here, because they're saying that Jesus, the Messiah, isn't the Messiah. He's not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He's indwelt by Satan. He uses a generic term, unspirit unclean spirit, but he's talking about Satan. That's what it is. So he rejects the charge, he explains the seriousness of the charge, and that is the pivot of the whole ministry of Christ, because now everything changes. The crowd, it takes a little while for the crowds to scatter, but at one point when he says, uh, you've got to believe in me to be saved, uh, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, which is a radical 
figure of speech for personal appropriation. It's not talking about the mass or not talking about cannibalism. And it says, because of this, his disciples, lowercase d, generic use of disciple for people who are listening to kind of figure out who he is, they're leaving him. And the 12 are looking, all the crowds go away, like, oh my gosh, we're losing our market share. And Jesus, this is John 6, you can read it. Uh, he says, you guys don't want to go too, do you? Because if you're leaving because I'm saying I'm the exclusive issue of eternal life, if that's why, that's why they're leaving, okay? Because they, they don't think I'm satanically possessed like the leaders said, but they don't think I'm the Messiah either. They will not have me as their Messiah. If you guys don't want me, you know, it's been nice, you know, you can leave if you want to. And Peter, speaking for 11 of the 12 of them, hits another home run. We tend preachers like to bang on Peter because he says a couple of dumb things. But what does he say there? Hey, where are we going to go? you got the words of eternal life. You are the Messiah. We totally buy that. So after this event, kind of commentated on by P, we'll look at the parable of the sower or the soils. There's a set of eight parables Jesus teaches in Matthew right after this O event, the opposition, that talk about the spiritual character of that point until the second coming. So if you want to know what that looks like, he'll tell us. We'll look at that next week. But, um, Dustin, rather than proclamation to the nation as widely as possible, now that the, the nation's going to say his miracles are done satanically, he starts to prepare the disciples for what's going to happen because they're definitely going to kill him. Now, Jesus, in the mind of God, in the creed of God, was crucified before the foundation of the world. That's going to happen. But the agency of that uh, is actually fully in sway here. So we're on this side. We're on the back side, in that sense, of the ministry of Christ. And... In uh, Matthew 12, the, the parallel passage to, to Mark 3 is Matthew 12. In the aftermath of Jesus challenging uh, the charge and talking about uh, the severity, the importance of the charge, the seriousness of the charge, he says, I'm going to do no more signs now because anything I do like, any miracle I do, you're going to say satanically possessed. And he means miracles done to demonstrate to the nation, he's the Messiah. I'm not going to do those for those reasons. I'll do them because of personal faith and excessive special need, but I'm not doing my miracles anymore for the emphasis of reinforcing who I am because you're going to use that against me. And he says, except for the sign of the prophet Jonah, which is what? The sign of the prophet Jonah is what in Jesus' life? Try the resurrection, right? The resurrection is the ultimate validation and uh, I don't think even the scribes and Pharisees would say that was done by satanic power, right? But they did come up with a cover story. What did they say? When the, when the body wasn't in the tomb, the disciples stole it and then went out and willingly died for it, got tortured for it, right? Which people don't do that, right? So let's conclude. We said at the beginning we're going to talk about the unparable sin, what it is, what it isn't, how not to do it. You want to cover that real quick? Now, uh, yeah, it's that. Uh, the unpardonable sin here is direct, deliberate, intentional, considered, absolute, non-negotiable, total repudiation of who Jesus Christ is to the extent of daring to believe and, and claim that he is satanically possessed. That's what that is, okay? And I would say maybe even you got to do it to his face. I mean... I don't think many people get to this point. I don't doubt people get to the point, that point spiritually, it happens. But I think it's fairly rare. I don't think people who worry about doing this are anywhere near to doing that. They may still be unsaved, but they haven't committed an unpardonable sin by definition. And I think that's good. So that's what it is. What it isn't, it isn't adultery. I'm not for adultery. That's a serious sin. It's horrible. Uh, but there are people in the Bible who committed adultery, who you're going to see in heaven. Is that okay with you, for God to forgive adulterers? I would say it probably should be a good thing if you want to think like God does about it. Uh, murder, is murder a horrific? I mean, murder, well, mass media, one murder for somebody, you know, I tend to think whenever I hear about, if I watch or listen to somebody talking about crime events, you know, if somebody steals something and they don't, you know, beat the person up, I think, well, you know, you can always buy another phone or something. But still, when something you've got is stolen and you go and it's gone and it's obvious you didn't misplace it, somebody stole it. I mean, it's like, you know, I'm not going to steal anything from Dustin just because, you know, I'm too smart to. 
But let's say he left his phone back, and I'm, I'm going to, that's his phone. I don't have a phone. I'm going to take his phone. It's his phone, but I want it. I'm taking it. He's not going to have it. I've got it. That's, that's evil. Stealing stuff is evil. It's terrible. But when you're talking about somebody who uh, murders or shoots people at a bank robbery or a mugging, some of these, uh, let's say, a, what is it? They'll describe some of these murders and a mugging like a, a uh, not a random crime, but a senseless a senseless murder took place today. To me, all murders are senseless. I mean, it's, it's horrible. It's terrible. I mean, look at the city of Chicago. It, it's it's I mean, it's a war zone in the south part of Chicago. It, it's horrific. It's terrible. Child abuse. All these things are horrific. And I'm not a murderer. I'm not a child abuser. And I haven't uh, committed adultery, okay? Uh, so I'm not covering myself on that. But th- those things are bad. Don't do those things. Um, if you do, you need spiritual and other rehab. But those are not the unpardonable sin. And when I've dealt with people who think they've committed the unpardonable sin, they've done something like that. Or they think they've done something like that. Right? And uh, you don't say, well, don't worry, that's not the unpardonable sin, no big deal. It is a big deal. we got to deal with that, but it's not the unpardonable sin. How do you not do it? Well, uh, let's see what Jesus says. Uh, I think it's good. John 3.16. Really, John 3.14. According to him, this is how this works. He's talking to them specifically, uh, but generally. Moses lifted up the serpent so that the brass serpent, so a look of faith would heal Israel of snake bites. Even so, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up on the cross. So whoever believes in him, one look of faith has everlasting life. For God the Father, the author of the plan of salvation, so loved the world, the cosmos, the fallen world, in the world but not out of the world that he gave his monogenes, his unique son, the only member of the Trinity who's become visible and incarnate, uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That whosoever, the Greek says that all of the ones, stronger than that, that all the ones who believe shall not perish like a fire, but have everlasting life as an abiding possession. For God didn't send his son into the world, just the world, the world was already stood under his judgment. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But that the world might be saved, one heart, one soul at a time. And here's the unpardonable sin, if you, theological unpardonable sin, if you want to call it that. The one who believes in him is not going to be judged. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The one who doesn't believe, who refuses, refuses to receive Christ, stands judged already in their sin because they haven't believed. Okay, that's what you want people to see. You haven't committed the unpardonable sin in Mark 3 and Matthew 12, but you may not have received the free gift of God through faith. That's what you want people to see. Drop down to verse 36, the last verse of chapter 3. The one who believes in the Son has everlasting life. The one who does not obey, that means to obey the call to believe, the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. I've got some other verses listed there. I won't read those now, but uh, you can if you want to later. So uh, let's talk about three things you should say to people who fear they've committed an unpardonable sin and will quit. You know, I looked at this this week, Janice, this uh, label I used with the O, letter O, and I think opposition offered is too vanilla. I would rather make it more emphatic, so I'm going to change that from now on. Opposition offered, let's change that to offensive. This is very offensive to look at the Son of God, the Creator, who's coming to, in, in, into time-space to die on the cross for your sins and say, we won't have you, don't want you, and you're satanically possessed. That's extremely offensive. So let's call that offensive opposition. First thing you do with people who fear they've committed it is define it. Again, they think that they did something like Lot does in the book of Genesis. Um, I won't even go into it. I don't even want to talk about it. But uh, So I'm probably too spiritual, right? Uh, but you can... Okay, boy. Bible study this afternoon. What did Lot do? <laughs> you know, Look it up. It's, it's horrific. But you gotta define it. They've done something like that, or they, you know, beat up their wife or something. Horrible. I'm not minimizing it. I despise that. I hate that with a passion. But it's not that. It's deliberate, considered, willful, total rejection, denunciation, demonization of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. Have you done that? And I go, no. In fact, I want to connect with him, you know, that's why they're here, they're talking to you. So define it. Where are you gonna find it in the Bible? I'd say Mark 3 would be a good place, okay? So, you know, I think that's the most concise place, and that's what we looked at today. Number two, move to the real issue. The real issue isn't whether or not you've committed an unpardonable sin. If you're worried about it, you haven't done it. It's 
personal salvation received by God's grace through faith, active receptive trust, in Christ. What does SAS stand for? Substitutionary atoning sacrifice. That's why he's on the cross. He's not dying for his sins. He had none. He's dying for mine and yours and the sins of the world. Uh, LBSR, literal, bodily, supernatural resurrection. A dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven. Hard to say. Uh, but the resurrected one can. Uh, looked at John 3.16, John 3.36, Romans 4.5. But to the one who does not work, but who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, Titus 3.4-7, uh, get me started, I know it. Uh, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, kind of thing. So move to the real issue, and then assure them of the fact, if you're worried about it, you haven't done it. Okay, Trust me, the self-righteous smug scribes who walk in there with their, their determined position to explain Jesus away, and they probably really believe it, uh, are they're happy when they walk up there and say that they're happy when they walk away? You know, we warned him. You know, we know what he really means, right? We've got a reason to reject him. So I would say, think about this: people who fear this might be unbelievers who are convicted of their sin, and they've probably done something pretty bad. If they're talking to a pastor or a counselor about the unpardonable sin, they just don't know what it is. They've done something pretty bad. So they're convicted of sin, their guilt, and that's a, that's a step to, to receiving a savior, realizing you're guilty, uh, not blaming on your mom or something. Uh, inability to save themselves, right? You, know, you need to realize you, you're repenting of dead works. If you're depending on religion to save you, you're not going to be savable either. So I'm a sinner. I can't fix it. You can. And I want you to. So, you know, they're pretty close to really considering the claims of Christ as to who he is, as the exclusive issue eternal life. So I'm, I'm sharing the gospel with people like that. That's what I'm going to do. And I like the Romans 4, 5 because it emphasizes the ungodly are the people that God saves. And that's everybody who gets saved. It's not just the wife of, wife beater or something like that. I know I was going to say, though I mentioned one out of three women will have an issue, but 20% of all domestic abuse situations are female on male. We tend to think it's always the husband that shoots the spouse or stabs the spouse or tries to kill the spouse or beats up the spouse. Twenty one out of every five is the wife getting a gun or a meat cleaver or something. We don't have we do have a gun in our house, but, we, but she didn't know where it is, and we don't have a meat cleaver. So baseball bats we used to have when I used to play baseball, but not anymore. We had to get rid of those. Now, it's possible for believers to get so messed up, they think they've committed unpardonable sin. If they don't know what it is, they've done something so horrific. We've had ordained ministers in our community over the 30 years I've been here who've done unspeakable things, and I tend to assume that probably it's very possible they weren't regenerate, but I don't know that for sure. And one more recent one, I knew somebody, I'm, I'm quite sure he was regenerate. Uh, I'm not sure what happened actually happened, but... Uh, I mean, I don't know, but I, I do think that I've talked to at least one, this was in Shreveport, <laughs> a long time ago, 30 plus years, uh, and you might say, well, that's not possible. David, in Psalm 32 and 51, talks about the aftermath of, as a believer, committing murder and adultery, or adultery and murder, did the murder to cover up his adultery, and talking about, return to me my salvation. Huh? Yeah, that's not what he said, is it? He said, return to me, what? The joy of my salvation. I mean, he is so distraught, ultimately, because of true guilt, and so depressed. He's probably pretty close to ending it, you know? So believers can do stuff they're so ashamed of and is so horrific that and if they don't know what the impermanent sin is, they'll assume they may have committed it. So... I've talked to people on both ends of that scale, up close and personal, and I, I said I haven't had a, somebody I was pretty con, was convinced was a believer based on previous data. And I don't know, but uh, anyway, hopefully. And so what do you do with a believer like that? Uh, we got to be born again again because you beat up your wife. No. we got to deal with that legally. you got big time problem. You need to get some help, man. That can't be. That's not possible. You cannot do that again. But. Uh, you don't have to be born again again. That's impossible, right? You need to stop rationalizing it. Guys will do this, you know. They'll beat up their wife. 
Then they'll make up. I'll never do it again. Then they beat them up, and they're really sorry. And they'll never do it again. And it's a spiral. They never get out of it. Uh, it's sad. you got to stop rationalizing it, rationalizing it, redefine it, idea it for what it is, isolate it. And when somebody thinks, I've done this thing 18 times, and I think it's an unpardonable sin, to me, that's progress. They're so convicted by it, they're willing to you know, stop blaming the wife for beating her up kind of thing. That's what they tend to do. But again, 20% of the time, it's the wife doing that. And what do you do biblically? What does David do? He confesses and recommits. You get back on the wagon when you stop, but you stop rationalizing your sin. Okay, hopefully you know what the unpardonable sin is. Um, don't do it. And um, when you deal with people who think that, uh, help them understand what it is in the process of biblically. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we uh, pray that you would give us the wisdom and the power of your Holy Spirit, not just to understand this information, but to apply it uh, in our experience, even if we never talk to somebody who says, hey, Dustin, I think I've committed an unpardonable sin. It could happen. But even if that doesn't happen, just help us to uh, realize that folks can get so hardened in their rejection they, of Jesus Christ, they can actually demonize his teaching and his mission and get so hardened, they can, humanly speaking, be totally beyond the pale. And quite often these people have influence in our culture. So help us to understand that, but also help us to uh, be gracious to those who maybe have done very serious, um, gross kind of things and realize that our worst, we can do pretty gross things too, and realize that uh, you're not any less gracious to believers uh, who do bad things, really bad things, than you are to unbelievers who come to, sal- to you for salvation in the first place. And I, I pray as we leave this building in a few minutes or in an hour from now, that we realize we're going into a mission field. And we may not be going to China or Thailand, but just going to Marlowe or Comanche or parts of Duncan, where I won't go. And if I did, they wouldn't want to listen to me, but they might want to listen to some of the folks here. And so help us to leave with a mission, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.